Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts that guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by sponsors like Johnsonville Foods, SwineWeb.com, Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hog Hearth, and SwineTech, the award-winning creator of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how you can reduce piglet crushing and your overall pre-winning mortalities by nearly 25%, visit SwineTechnologies.com. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to be discussing leadership with Tomer Yogev. How are you doing today, Tomer? I'm doing great. Right now, the industry is facing a ton of turmoil. Our supply chain has been broken. Producers are trying to figure out what the next steps look like. And I thought it might make sense to bring in an expert around strengths, leadership, driving a business down the, down the paths we want to go, and just kind of talk about how we can apply principles that really apply to all businesses to solve some of the challenges that are facing producers today. And then we're going to kind of dive into some, some topics and, and theories that are very, very close to home for you and that you've even, I guess, advised me with over the past few years. Tomer, you have, I guess, a really interesting background. And so if you <laughs> might introduce yourself and your talk about your background, that would be awesome. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks so much for having me. And I, and I love talking about this. And especially as it pertains to an industry like this that has been so deeply affected by this just shift in the world. Um, so my background is I'm a, I'm a former tech guy. My first business was developing websites when that was a brand new technology back in the 90s. Uh, I was in college at the time sold that business off because I was damn near failing out of college <laughs> trying to do both at the same time uh, and got myself in sort of the tech startup scene, did a number of different startups of different stripes, uh, again, predominantly in tech, but not exclusively, some as divergent as medical devices, education technology, uh, so on and so forth. In total, 14 different companies that I've either founded, co-founded, or was an early employee at, a uh, couple of fairly notable exits. Thought I'd take uh, a, my largest exit and my uh, fancy MBA that I had just recently acquired at the time to go do venture capital. Did that for all of three whopping months before I realized I was just not put on this earth to do venture capital. And then from there, moved into interim executive roles at a variety of different companies. Again, broadly startups, broadly tech, but not exclusive to that. And then from there, moved into executive coaching. And so for the last half dozen years, pretty much exclusively focused on working with entrepreneurs and business owners around these very ideas, around leadership, culture, and, and how to take some of these things that on the face of them are, are, are fairly ambiguous, fairly fluffy, 
you know, when we talk about being your authentic self and rooting your leadership in strengths, you know, that, that, that's all pretty fluffy language. And at the end of the day, we all have bills to pay. There's a bottom line that we're all accountable to. And so really what my work is getting people to embrace that high-end ambiguous stuff, but understand its connectivity to the down and in profits and margins and bottom line type business outcomes. So might you talk a little bit about the big joy theory? I know this is something that you've been working pretty heavily on and it'd be really good if you just give an introduction to what that is and your goals with that. Yeah, absolutely. So it goes right to what I was saying about kind of grabbing the fluffy and going all the way down to the bottom line. Because what we talk about is making joy relevant to your bottom line. Joy is one of those things that, you know, even the concept for a lot of people around talking about joy at work is sort of antithetical. It's, you know, this is, this is a serious place of business. What the hell are we talking about joy for? Um, and, and that's misguided. Joy is something that, frankly, most people don't even really understand what it means because it so often gets conflated with happiness or wellness even. Um, and joy is something more internalized than that. So we could spend this entire podcast just talking about the differentiation between happiness and joy. Uh, I'm more than happy to do that, but I don't think that's what you're shooting for here. <laughs> But fundamentally what it is, is if I can get you oriented around those moments in your life when you were performing at your absolute best, when you were completely who you are, if we can understand what those are, those moments, how those moments manifest, get you to understand that about yourself, get you to explain that to all the people on your team that you work with, investors, customers, whomever. And then start building a business around that, the processes, the, the culture, the, the employees. That will only continually reinforce that you will be in the best possible position for your individual performance and for that of your team. So going to some of the things that you were talking about, I completely agree with everything you said. I would only just challenge that it needs to be taken a little bit further in that when we talk about the transparency, it's not just about business decisions. It's also about you as the leader. Who are you really? Why do you engage in that way? And what, what is the rationale behind it? And what, what can I expect as a teammate, as an employee, as a customer even, as a result of that? And the example I use all the time is there's two of the biggest, most well-known companies in the world right now, you got Google and you got Amazon. And if you went and got hired at Amazon right now, and then were really disappointed that you don't get free lunches and desk massages, shame on you. Because Amazon is really clear that they don't do that. If that's something you want, you go work at Google. And that's that cultural component that we're talking about. And it's not to say, oh, Google is somehow better than Amazon. They're both phenomenal companies. But they're very clear in how they treat their people, what that culture is, what that brand is. And that starts right 
at the top, right at the beginning. It starts when you're a one-person company. And it's so important for leaders to understand who they are as individuals so that they can, one, keep themselves accountable to that, but then, two, express that to their team so that the team understands why they're doing what they're doing, why those decisions are being made they are, and to the degree that they agree or disagree with them, how they fit in and what their place is inside this organization in relationship to leadership. No, I appreciate the example of the Amazon and the Google because a lot of people might, I've heard some very interesting takes on Amazon. Oh, they don't do anything for their employees or Google. They, they just, they spoil their team. You know, you don't have to work there. It's exactly <laughs> uh, right. You don't have to. I mean, I mean, those are those people. And if it works for them, great. You can comment on it. But at the end of the day, they're successful businesses. They've got happy people. And it all comes down to, yeah, knowing what you want. Yeah, listen, Amazon is a business built on efficiency and logistics. I, you know, the other thing I use for Amazon all the time that I think is really relevant to smaller businesses is I point out that up until, I don't know, the last two or three years, at which point they're already worth billions and billions and billions of dollars, they have fundamentally had no marketing or advertising that was worth anything. They, they were a lousy marketing company. They still kind of are, but especially for their size. But up until a couple of years ago, they, they were, it was non-existent. And I assure you that there were board meetings where there was a board member banging on the desk, insisting that Amazon do better with their marketing, that they, you know, who, who's ever going to use this if we don't market it correctly? And, you know, and these are all good, logical, business school informed type thinkings. You're not, you know, marketing is generally something you kind of need, but somehow Amazon did it without. Why? Because nobody goes to Amazon because they got marketed to. You go to Amazon because you can get pretty much anything under the sun in your hand in a day for a really cheap price. So that's why you do Amazon. Amazon is super crystal clear about what they are and it breaks itself all the way down to how they treat their employees. No, you don't get a free lunch and a desk massage here. So there's pros and there's cons. And to your point, people will judge it no matter which way you go, right? Because on the flip side, you got Google who does all that and it goes, oh, they just spoil their people. I bet people don't get any work done over there. Oh, all their people are just, you know, fat and sassy. And, you know, yeah, that might be true too. That might be true too. But both of those organizations somehow still have a bottom line that is pretty doggone healthy. I wish every business that's listening to this podcast right now had the level of misfortune of a Google or an Amazon. So it's, it, 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 it's oversubscribing with this sort of corporate view that you have to do it this way and this is what a good business must look like and so on and so forth that invariably pulls people off course and gets people as individual leaders into this kind of imposter syndrome type thing because if bezos was out there trying to be an incredible marketer 
he's going to fail at that. It's not what he does. You, you start to get an inauthentic self and an inauthentic team, and then you have just an unhappy work, workplace. Right. And then you can't be mad at your employees for not understanding who you are, not understanding how to do what you want, not understanding how to you know, relate to you when you are not actually being completely honest. Right? That, that's on you. If I, if I don't tell you everything that you need to know about me, then I can't be upset when you don't treat me the way I want to be treated. And that's true leadership, management, business. That, that's true all the way down to how you interact with your spouse or your kids. You have to be completely open and transparent and honest so that other people know how to engage with you. You can't be mad about it if you haven't shared because how would they ever know? And that's all levels of leadership, right? Even if you only have two people you're in charge of, I mean, they need to know who your authentic self is and what makes you tick and why so that they can work with you as best as possible and also know how they can feel comfortable uh, working around you. And I, I deal with this all the way down to solopreneurs because your customers need to know. The, your, your, your vendors need to know. Your suppliers need to know. And, and moreover, it's important that you know so that you can choose the right vendors and suppliers and even customers. Because oh, you, you, as a single person company, the, one of the worst things that can happen to you is to have a customer with whom you are a bad fit. Because now you've got someone out there going like, yeah, I worked with Matthew. He's okay. You know, it's fine. Right? Like that's the worst thing that can happen when you're a one person business. Agreed. And yeah, and to bring it to, to the customer, bring it to our industry, I guess for a little statistics right now, based on some prior research published by National Hog Farmer and Pork Progress or Pig Progress, about, there's about a 39% turnover rate year over year in the North American, or at least in the US and Canada in the swine industry. And so this is a problem that, is, that has been voiced by many leaders in the industry. We're always looking for ways to improve. But I think we need to take a deeper look at, at what we're doing because we're, we're not necessarily operating in an industry where we have thousands of people longing to work in, in the pig barns. Uh, so there's not a ton of options, but we also just can't allow ourselves to accept whomever applies for the sake of, of hoping they're a fit. I think there we do need to take a step back and look, okay, is this a culture fit? Because if it's not, we're most likely going to be wasting a heck of a lot more money on the back end just trying to, to fill a team as opposed to looking for that right fit. I guess what, what's in your opinion, what role does culture play in an employee satisfaction, customer satisfaction, just overall success within an organization? It, 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 it's, it's so fundamental because it, it overlays everything. And your point notwithstanding around kind of the, the, the churn in the industry and the, the hiring and so forth that needs to happen. But when a person works at your organization, of course, at some level, there's always going to be the trading hours for dollars. You can't get away from that. We live in a capitalistic society, not to 
don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-capitalist or anything like that, but like that is just one of the natural things that is going to shake out. I need to eat at night. I need money to do that. You're going to give me that money, so I will provide you services. That's fundamentally what's happening there. And that's fine. But if we leave it at that, then the, then anywhere else that I can go trade my hours for more dollars or you know, less hours for the same dollars or whatever, of course I'm going to go do. When you start introducing culture, that starts explaining not so much what the person does, but how the person does it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that their job changes at all, but it's everything else. It's, it's this more ambiguous layer that sits on top of everything that we do. And it's the job of the leadership of an organization to establish that. Now, what's important to note when you talk about culture is I've watched so many companies do this. They go and they read the value statements of these various companies that they admire and they, they craft a mission and a vision and they go, okay, that's our, that's our culture now, which in and of itself isn't completely misguided. But the problem with it is that it's fundamentally aspirational, right? I can't start a company and go, this is going to be a fun place to work. And this is going to be a place where everyone gets along. And this is going to be like, no, that's not necessarily true. If I am the founder of an organization and I'm completely antisocial and nobody really enjoys hanging out with me, then the likelihood that I'm going to start an organization that's going to be real fun to work at and everyone's going to have a great time and be super so is really, really, really low. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm doomed for failure. Again, I'll go back to Amazon. Jeff Bezos isn't known for his stunning charisma. He built a company that is also not known for its stunning charisma. And yet, it's you know, a trillion dollar business. So much in the same way, leadership and culture, it's about uncovering what's already there. It's a matter of introspection into who you are as a leader, what you do and and when you operate best, getting clear on those themes and then developing culture around that, which is why it's so important to do it as early on as you possibly can when you don't have to incorporate 20, 50, 100 other people's concepts of what work and leadership in this organization should be. It can really be about you, and then you can build an organization around that. Now, if you haven't done that and you have those people, be it two or 100, it's the same work, it's just a little bit more complex because now we have more variables at play. But essentially, it boils down to the same concept that culture cannot be aspirational. Culture has to be unburied. It has to be something that you look at, see what's there, and then define it so that the right people can opt in, and quite frankly, so that the wrong people can opt out. With an industry that has 39% churn, as you mentioned, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have experienced that someone has left the organization and they went home that night and said, oh, thank God, that guy was killing me. 
right? Happy to replace that person. Because what you're seeing, even if you haven't defined it, is that individual was not a good fit. And what a good fit means is not just about how many, you know, widgets they can spit out in an hour or, you know, it's not just this simple productivity thing. There's much more to it. And there's a lot of other things that are a little bit vaguer and a little bit more ambiguous, but are just as important as the direct business metrics of productivity. And, and culture is interesting too, in the sense that, and, and I, I can definitely say that when we started out at Swine Tech, our goal was to create culture X and we made it aspirational and it didn't work until we took a step back looked at our existing team identified the values that made our existing team great what were the commonalities between them but then you're you also as an organization if if you're trying to change a culture and you've already been hiring for something else you're most likely going to look at a high turnover until you now have a lot of individuals who all of a sudden after time can identify collectively with that new culture, right? I mean, you, you might already have employed individuals who, who don't want it to be fun, but if it's supposed to be about fun and 90% of your organization is about fun, it's probably better or not that that 10% that just doesn't fit and is unhappy every day, probably better on off that they move on. That's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. And, and, and again, I'll go back to the examples that we were going before just because everyone kind of knows these companies, right? If tomorrow Google says, we are now an efficiency company, we are no longer doing desk massages, they're going to have an exodus. Forget 10%. <laughs> like half of their workforce is going to be quitting the next day. So it, it, it's, you're exactly right. And, and what I really liked about what you said is it's about identifying what was already great about your team. And that is so critically important because so much of what we're taught when it comes to how to fix something that's wrong is to go look at what, you know, what are you messing up? You know, how are you bad as the leader? And then how do I make you good at it? So, you know, again, just picking from big, notable kind of tech people, uh, Elon Musk, right? One of the worst presenters I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) And I'm sure, again, someone on his path told him, you know, until you can get up on a stage and move the people and motivate the sales force and get people excited, you'll never be successful. And yet somehow he has managed. And I can't even begin to tell you, just by virtue of the fact that I have the title coach uh, on my like LinkedIn, I get calls all the time going, hey, I'm really bad at presentations. Can you help me with that? You know, no, that's not really what I do. But beyond that, I question the, the very premise do you really need to be a great presenter to be a good leader? I know plenty of very successful leaders who are terrible presenters. Elon Musk being probably the most iconic. But it, it, it's the same thing across the board. So when we talk about you know, your culture 
at Swine Tech having historically been aspirational, what I think is so vitally important is that you then took the time to go, what is working? What is right? How do we codify that? How do we understand those themes and then call everybody into them time and time and time again? And that's fundamentally the exercise, not just of of developing culture in a workplace, but developing your your leadership presence, right? So that individual who can't present, it's like, that's fine. What can you do? Why are you even in a position to be in leadership? What are those things? And let's get really clear on that. Because so much of what we're taught is that we have to fix these weaknesses and be so deficit-oriented but and and that that's ingrained in us from grade school, right? When you come home with a report card that's A A A A A B minus, the response invariably is, "What's up with the B minus? Fix the B minus. Why can't you get an A in that class? You know what's wrong with you?" And I kind of understand that in the academic world because you know we all want our kids to go to Harvard or whatever, but. In, in life, in leadership, in managing the team, it's not about trying to get A's or even B's on everything. It's about having a couple of things that you're known for, that people understand about you, and doing those at an exceptional level. And being crystal clear that this is what you do and this is how you lead. And if you want to work here as opposed to the other place, these are the reasons why. So if I'm a leader and I have a team and historically, I have, let's just say wipe the slate clean. Let's say I do want to focus on those strengths. I do want to try to build people up for the things that they're great on. What are some of the tools or resources or thought process that I need to be using or going through to help me be the leader that I need to be to encourage those I'm leading to kind of get to that next level to, to be great? That's Fantastic question. Thank you. So there's a world of resources out there. Obviously, I'm going to say coaching is one of them. But what I would say is it's fundamentally an introspective process. Anything where you are being like, here are the five ways great leaders lead or any of that stuff, that's all nonsense. Because again, that's prescriptive. That's you have to be these five things and then go do that. Well, you may not be those five things. So you, you, you can't do that. You're going to be faking it. Um, the other thing that I also caution people against is mentorship. I think mentors have a place. I'm not anti-mentor, but the, the thing that I caution against is it's so easy to go talk to someone who, you know, is more successful, more senior, more whatever in your industry, and then go, well, I just need to be like them. Well, you're not them. And moreover, you're building your business in a different time, in a different place, so on and so forth. If COVID has illuminated anything, it's none of us really know what the hell we're doing, <laughs> right? It's, you know, this is brand new just because this guy down the street has had a successful pick farm for 50 years and makes millions of dollars does not mean he knows how to navigate this situation any better than you do. So there's a time and a place for mentorship. You can certainly learn things from that, especially kind of the factual
actual components. But what's so important to go to back to your question is that you take the time to reflect on who you are and what has worked. So one exercise that I do with a lot of people as they can serve as a really strong starting point is just sit down with a pad and pen and ask yourself, what were the 10 best moments of your life? And now when I say moments, it could be a five second moment when you hit that game winning home run, or it can be a one year moment where everything went so super well and you were really productive and you got married that year too and whatever, right? Moment can mean anything you really want it to mean. But when I talk about the 10 moments in your life that you were performing at your absolute best, that you were the best version of you in all the decades you've spent on this earth, what are those moments that come up? And just simply write them down. And then go back through and look at the 10 that you've identified and start seeing what themes emerge. Were all 10 moments where it was just you and a book? Were they all moments where you were at parties? Were they all moments where the sun was shining? Whatever. What are those themes? And start understanding that there's, that's the data. That's what we're really looking for because those themes are telling us something about you and who you really are as a leader, as a human being, and the things that are necessary for your best performance to manifest. Once we understand all of that and start to kind of give it a name, we can then start going about expressing that to others and building systems and processes and so on and so forth that will continually reinforce those things. And that's the joy, right? That's exactly it. So that's exactly where big joy theory kind of comes from is, you know, to augment the question just slightly, give me the 10 moments of your life that you were most joyful. And what did those look like? And how do we build a life to continually reinforce that joy? And I think it's fair to even augment it even further and say from an individual who's leading an industry or an organization or a team, maybe even in a shorter time window, what are the 10 things that apply to that situation? What are the 10 things as an industry that, that brought us the most joy as a team, as an organization and figuring out why, why were those things? Why, why was it those items? What was so great about them? And maybe how, how do we position ourselves to, to bring more of that to fruition, to our lives, to our, to our businesses? Is, I mean, is that what you're kind of going with here? That's exactly where I'm going. And that's exactly how you do it when you're talking about more than one person, right? Now it becomes more of a consensus building. It's, hey, team, can we come to agreement around some of those 10 moments? Or do we each want to throw up a moment that was the best for, for, for you? And then we look at all of those as a group and see what themes start to emerge. And the idea here is not necessarily that, you know, there has to be this thing that is exactly present in all 10 of them. If it's only in six, seven, or eight, that's fine. That's a theme. That's good enough. Let's pick that up. Obviously, the one that's in all 10 is like something you really need to pay attention to. But the fact that something only showed up in six, seven, eight of them is still more than good enough. There's data in that. 
And can we start understanding what that is and then aiming for that? Because what we know is if I can get you those things, if you can say, here are the 10 moments, and out of those 10 moments, these five themes emerged or whatever. If I can now wave my magic wand and just give you those five themes every single day for you, for your team, for your organization, how worried are you really now about productivity, about profitability, about bottom lines? You know full well if I can just guarantee you those five themes every single day like clockwork, the balance sheet is going to take care of itself, and then some. Moreover, even in a world where somehow that isn't true, where somehow you did all five of those themes every single day, and you still had to fold up shop and file for bankruptcy because it just wasn't happening. I've dealt with a lot of clients who've had to file for bankruptcy. And what I can tell you is when you wake up on that next day and you look back on the journey, even in that most terrible of outcome, the thing that sticks with you more than anything isn't the fact that you filed bankruptcy, isn't the fact that it went to zero. It's what ifs. It's had I just made more cold calls? Had I just, you know, gotten rid of that guy sooner? Had I, whatever, right? It's all of those thoughts that become completely consuming and just keep people mired in the down spiral post a company folding shop. And in that world, you want to be able to look back and go, at least I was true. At least I was true to me. At least I was true to these things that I believe. At least I was true to the type of leader that I authentically am. Of course, I'm disappointed that it didn't work out. That's terrible. But I'm not riddled with that regret and resentment and all of those other things. And so it, it's not only the highest likelihood for success by orienting yourself, your team, your business around these things. But it's also the safety net in the event of the worst case scenario. No, it makes a ton of sense. And I, I guess it's interesting to bring it all back around to barn culture and, and the pork industry. There was actually an example I heard from a farmer, which was fascinating. They had a team that would routinely get to work and spend an hour sitting around a table just chit-chatting before they would actually go out and start working. And they would still put in their eight-hour days. There's nine hours at the farm, but they spend an hour, and the, the manager was frustrated. He said, we were wasting so much time. Like, what, what are we doing? And they made it. They kind of said, we're not going to do that anymore. Well, productivity just completely went through the floor. It was just crap. It was awful. And they decided that, you know, let, let's see what happens. And they reinstated that hour of togetherness time and everything went back to operating in the top 20 percentile of the industry. Just fabulous results, fantastic results. Those people all of a sudden had what was the culture of their day-to-day -day flipped. 
And when that happened, they weren't happy. They weren't performing as well. And that made a huge impact. And so something as little as that can just totally transform the workplace. I love your story. I have a client that is almost the exact same story in reverse, which is they were a uh, sales organization and the leadership was very action oriented, right? How many calls have you made today? How many, you know, right? It was all very super bulleted and they were underperforming. And so every Monday morning, they would have their Monday morning meeting, the bang on the table. You guys aren't making enough calls and da, 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 and all this. And the team was just miserable. And we went through and had some conversations with the team and they were all relationship building type people. That's how they sold. It's how they function. That's who they were as leaders. And so what we asked them to try, uh, they were in New York City. So, uh, you know, there's a million coffee and donut places out there. So what we asked them to do is for your Monday morning meeting, just cycle around. Someone has to get donuts from some different donut shop and someone has to get coffee from a different coffee shop and make it kind of a thing and give them like 30 minutes before the meeting to just have coffee and donuts and talk about their weekends and whatever, whatever. And when I tell you that this leader looked at us like we had a third eye, I am understating it (laughs) immensely, right? I mean, he thought we were completely Looney Tunes. And I fully appreciate from his perspective we are because you mean I'm going to take this underperforming group and feed them donuts and coffee and let them chit-chat for 30 minutes? Are you out of your, like, no, they need to come in two hours earlier and make more phone calls. Like, it's exactly the opposite of what I would do if I was an underperforming salesperson. And that's true for that individual. And what we were able to get to is a place where, yes, as leadership, I am responsible to this bottom line. I am responsible to how much sales comes in and the quotas and the this and the that. And so I am going to bang the drum on that. That's who I am. That's why I'm in this role. But how the people actually go about doing it may look very different from the way that you would want to do it. And that's fundamentally the art of leadership is understanding yourself well enough so that everyone can understand how to relate to you, but also taking the time and the interest to understand them to create the constructs, the processes, the context underneath which they will perform at their best. And just to wrap up the story, they did exactly that. They've been doing it now for a couple of years. They went from one of the most underperforming teams in the organization to the number one team in the organization. Uh, You know, all the kind of measurable outcomes and so on and so forth you could ever want. Because these people now were getting what they needed, which was that interpersonal connectivity, which, yes, maybe sounds fluffy to that leader, but that's what these people needed to kind of get their buckets filled so that they can go out there and do their sales. Now, I appreciate you sharing that story, too, because I think both of them are just a great, are great examples of what this leadership philosophy or perspective of strengths and joy in the, in the work environment, what it, what it really translates to in, in real world scenarios. 
I guess to wrap things up, if, if you wouldn't mind, one thing we do on the podcast is we have each guest share a golden nugget. What's Tomer's golden nugget? Golden nugget, and I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, is understand that you, all of us, have been indoctrinated with this idea that you have to fix what's wrong. And it's not productive when it comes to leading a team, an organization, even yourself. It's infinitely more productive to understand what's working, where your joy lives, and orient everything you do to continually bring that into your life. And when you understand that and kind of accept that and start thinking in that way, all of those things that you're worried about, the bottom line type outcomes, naturally fall out. Now, I appreciate you sharing that. And I really thank you for joining us on the Popular Pig Podcast. It's been a different different take, but I think one that is going to add value to everybody listening because we can always be better leaders. I think we can always be improving and to wrap things up, I believe that a focus on constant improvement in oneself is an aspect, a, a very defining aspect of what makes a great leader. Um, so I really thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Matthew. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. Therefore, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com and subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are available. Today's episode is brought to you by sponsors like SwineTech. Leverage the power of computer vision, voice recognition, and real-time behavioral monitoring to reduce mortalities and labor inefficiencies in the farrowing house. For more information, visit swinetechnologies.com.